Hello and welcome to this week's Dairy Dialogue podcast and it's number 130. And it's also a little bit different because we have our first interview with four people from the same company, which means that today we have guests from Argentina, Chile, the Netherlands, the UK and Ireland. One of the interviews is with two people and one of our guests is back for her third interview. So it's a packed hour for you or just under an hour on subjects as diverse as chia, ice cream and molecular farming. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and this was the week when we were finally able to travel around the country again. I totally avoided going anywhere near Glasgow or Edinburgh and popular beaches that were apparently packed over the weekend. But there are thousands of potential hikes, so we went off in the other direction to avoid as many people as possible. Not that we're antisocial, but the thought of walking up a hill with hundreds of other people inadvertently photobombing all the photographs wasn't that appealing. So we ended up going south to the quaintly named Gatehouse of Fleet. And a nice walk it was too, although strangely we talked to quite a few people and all but one had English accents. But I have to say it was nice to see some different scenery. Hopefully the weather complies again this coming weekend. Away from the pandemic, I'm on a fantastic run of online purchases. The past five have all had to go back for various reasons, either because they sent the wrong item or because they were faulty. And contacting quite a few of these companies has become a lot more challenging lately. It's almost a full-time job trying to get refunds. At least with these podcasts, you don't need a refund because it's free. Well, it does cost you the time to listen to it, but you can do that while you're doing other things. I've taken up podcast listening again as I walk the dog, and it seems the number of podcasts in the past year has quadrupled. Not that the quality of some of them has, but we'll steer clear of that subject and move on to who we have on the show today. We usually seem to have three interviews on the podcast, and today is no exception, but we do have more guests. One interview is with four people, and we also say hello to a guest we've had a few times on the show before. So we chatted with Zelika Carr, CEO of the Ice Cream Alliance, about a new campaign to get people buying ice cream in the UK this summer. Gaston Palladini, Martin Salinas... Henk Hochenkamp and Catalina Jones from Mulek Science about molecular farming, and Remy Reguero, Business Development Manager, and Sandra Gilo, CEO at Benexia, about Chia. And of course, we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. Before we get to the interviews, let's take a quick look at the news you may have missed, and there has been quite a lot this past week. Central Park is set to go organic through the Stonyfield program, and that's the Central Park in New York, not the one in Kansas City. New Zealand's Westland is going to invest in carbon emissions reductions. Pacor is adding to its Duo Smart packaging solutions for dairy, and SIG is building a new plant in Mexico. It must be the time of year for building projects because Great Lakes Cheese is also expanding with a new facility in Texas and Dutch Lady Milk Industries is to build a new production facility in Malaysia. On top of that, Kerry is investing 30 million euros in its Indonesian taste facility. Canadian dairy cooperative Agropur made the news twice this week. It's closing its plant in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and it's also stopping transportation of milk in Quebec and Nova Scotia. We had an interesting article on why the dairy industry must be alert to global fraud trends. 
Tetra Pak introduced 14 lines for cheese manufacturers and KKR is investing in the Adopter Cow Dairy Company in China. Sealed Air has introduced shrink packaging designed for the circular economy for products like cheese. Danone issued its Q1 results and there are also articles on Arla Foods Ingredients, Valio and GEA. So you can check them all out at dairyreporter.com. So let's move on to today's interviews. First up, we're talking Chia in Chile. Benexia, headquartered in Chile, specializes in the production, processing, commercialization, and marketing of chia and chia-based ingredients. It provides chia oils, fiber, powder, seeds, and premixes for dairy, beverages, bakery, plant-based products, bars, snacks, sport nutrition, and more. And to find out more about that, we spoke with the company's business development manager, Remy Reguero, and CEO, Sandra Gilo. So I wonder if you could first fill us in a bit of background on the company. Uh, we started in the early 2000s, let's say, with the chia seed and started to promote the chia seed uh, in the food industry. But it was bulk seed and chia seed as you know it now. I think after efforts uh, of 10 years, we really saw a boom in the chia seed demand, thanks to some uh, people in the United States who really get interested uh, by the seed. And uh, as Benexia, we were really uh, well exposed to face this high demand at this time, and the, the chia market really boomed. When we saw that the chia was going to be commoditized at this time, we decided to go for the ingredients and um, well try to do some value added on the seed. But also, I think what's, what was behind this uh, project at Benexia was really how to be able to include chia seeds, nutrition, and everything, uh, all the good things that chia seed has to include it in the food formulations and in the food industry. So that was basically how to be able to remove this gel that you have around it. So we worked on the mesylation extraction and we worked on different things to try to, to be able to make a product that is more available and more easy to use for food formulator in the food plant. We worked with uh, experts, universities. Uh, we also worked with industrial in Europe. Try to find a way to do something with this seed and after some years, we got these three ingredients that we are selling right now, which is uh, the, the oil on one side and then a very finely milled powder that has uh, more protein and then another powder which concentrates the chia fiber. Well, we are operating as a food ingredient uh, supplier since 2016 getting all the certifications, all the regulatory approvals. Venexia is a medium-sized company. We have people in Bolivia, Argentina in our, for the supply chain on the agricultural side. And then we have like 15 people between Argentina and Bolivia. And then we have uh, in Chile, 50-55 people for commercial and also production. We now have a distribution network in the U.S., which is very consolidated in the U.S., Asia is very consolidated too. We have LATAM. We cover LATAM. We are mainly developing in the U.S. with very, very interesting applications. Uh, Remy will talk about the functionalities and the nutrition in some applications, which is very interesting. So I guess, could you tell me what kind of products Chia is useful in? 
In the, the market in, let's say, North America, and most of the people know the seed, right? But then you have the different fraction of the chia seed that can be used in different type of application. The oil, you can use it both in cooking application as well as a nutraceutical application. And you can use it in any food and beverage application just to enrich uh, omega-3. So the most common application you would see is on budding oil, on uh, uh, nutraceutical soft gels, or supplementation, liquid supplementation. And also you would see a lot of in the beverage industry, both dry or even liquid beverage application. Just with that a drop of chia oil, I'm, I'm talking about like 0.5%, you can enrich with 320 milligram of omega-3, which is basically a claim of high, high source of omega-3. It's omega-3 ALA, uh, alpha linoleic acid. So basically it's, it's the precursor of all the omega-3 for the human nutrition. We also have some application of the oil on the pet food, which is also available, both cookies, um, dog food cookies, or, or even uh, prepared food food. Then we have what we call the chia powder, which is the fractionating protein and fiber part of the chia. All our ingredients and all our process are 100% natural. We believe on a clean label ingredient because of the benefits of the chia seed. The chia seed have fiber, protein, and omega-3. It doesn't contain any starch. So basically, very low in sodium or very low in saturated fat. So basically, it's an ingredient that you can use in any application in order to have a protein, fiber, and omega-3 enrichment. Those common applications are basically the nutritional uh, on powder. Whenever you do a protein shake or a protein plus or fiber plus shake, you can apply those on the dry powder application. Or you also can apply it on liquid application, like when you want to do creamer or when you want to do a liquid beverage or let's say plant-based milk. And then you can apply in dry product, dry application, like for example, bakery product, bakery snack product, confectionery, in order to enrich in fiber, protein, and omega-3. So let's say one of our key ingredients is the chia powder 435, which is a powder that you have the texture for those dry applications for the bakery and snack, because it's basically chia flour. It's very simple to use. There's some additional benefits on chia is that since we do a natural process, the chia keeps the soluble fiber, which is the famous mucilage, the jelly, you know, the jelly particle that you see when you place the chia seed on, on water and it releases a gel part. Well, that keep on the flower. So basically, that mucilage have a physical characteristic functionality, very similar to Santan gum you know, like those pseudoplasticity. Uh, so whenever you use it in a bakery product, snack product, it also helps you to reduce the usage of blender, like stabilizer, gums, or even emulsion. Because And that combined together, which helps you also in your formulation to reduce the ingredient list and have a more clean label list. It's excellent for flexitarian applications. Also, the, the chia flour doesn't contain starch or carbohydrate, available carbohydrate. This is great for keto application. It, you can use the from black chia seed or from white chia seed, depending on the color that you want to have. It. The black color is going to give you more a dark or cheese and whole food color. The white one is going to be giving you more a golden beige type of finished product whenever you use 10% in your typical recipe.
In the day part, there's some companies and some customers that are applying our product as a functional stabilizer. For example, for vegan ice cream or, uh, or frozen desserts, and also for creamer application, plant-based creamer application, that whenever you want to have that viscosity that you need it, you can apply the chia powder. In those vegan products, in order to get the viscosity high, normally you apply santan gums. So basically, with the chia powder, you can replace that santan gum and have a more clean label aspect of the finished product. Can they add things on their labels like omega-3 or protein, or they can use that as a claim on the front of the package as well? To have the omega-3 claim, uh, you have to reach at least uh, 220 milligram of uh, omega-3, and that is possible. You can claim plant-based, you can claim gluten-free products, you can claim high in protein, of course, if you need to reach the 5 and the 10 uh, gram per serving, respectively. So that is going to be depending on your formulation, on the total ingredient that you're using, and that is possible too. And high in fiber, of course, if you reach 3 gram, and it is, that is something that is very easy with our product because it's so rich in fiber, you reach the 3 gram of fiber proportion very easily on any bakery application. And that is just even using wheat flour. They say standard wheat flour, white wheat flour that doesn't have any nutritional value. And you replace 10% of that. And your product will have a fiber clean immediately. And an omega-3 clean too. Yes, the thing is how to put it in more applications so that we can really benefit from its nutrition. And uh, it's so so good, you know, it's so good. When you look at the nutrition and the functionality, it's so, so nice ingredient. Next, it's ice cream in the UK. There's still no real idea as to when and whether people in the UK are going to be allowed to go on vacation to different countries. So it looks like 21 will be the year of the staycation, when everyone takes a holiday in a different part of the UK. The Ice Cream Alliance, the UK's trade association for the ice cream sector, is mobilising its members, the wider industry and other parts of the hospitality sector to promote their products to all those holidaying in the country this summer. The new campaign is called The Great British Ice Cream Staycation, and it's encouraging businesses of all types and sizes to get involved. To tell us why and how, and making her third appearance on the podcast, is the Ice Cream Alliance's CEO, Zelika Carr. The pandemic's created all kinds of issues. What's it done to the ice cream industry in the UK? Well, I, I would say that during the first lockdown, we were all taken a little bit by surprise, you know, what was classed as essential and non-essential. You know, we just advised all our members to adhere to the government guidelines, please stay at home, save the NHS until we know more about things. But then as sort of time went on, it was then the different councils having different variations on what they thought the guidelines were, which then caused quite a lot of our members issues where they were able to do sort of takeaways. But were they? Because there were some councils that were saying, basically, especially on the mobiling front, if they saw any mobiles out, they would blacklist them and take away their licenses in the future. Where other councils had asked our mobilers to go out and deliver as well as take away ice cream, but to do um, other supplies like um, bread and milk to the most vulnerable and people that were, it was hard for them to get out to get to the shops. 
So that took quite a long time to get resolved and it didn't get really resolved. I think the last council to start allowing sort of mobilers and people to trade and do takeaways wasn't until like the 1st of June. And as you remember, when we went into lockdown, the weather was amazing, wasn't it? In March, April and into May. So I think that was the difficulty. The government sort of um, office, we came under the sector of Office of Product and Safety and Standards. So the OPSS office, and they basically then gave the councils the guidance to make up their own interpretations of the guidelines. And that's where it became very complicated. We all wanted to adhere to the rules, but what were the rules when everybody else was interpreting them slightly different? Our other big issue is it was great then when we were all sort of working off one hymn sheet, the UK, but then when the devolved nations started to do their own rules and interpretations then that's just when it became very complicated obviously being the unknown and nobody quite knowing what they could do what they couldn't do i mean all we could do was advise our members on takeaway obviously how to be covid safe supply them with risk assessments that they could do even on the manufacturing they had to then look at how many people they could manufacture a product by giving them space because as you can imagine, normally in a factory, you're near enough on top of each other. And it's just working out sort of either shift patterns or different working practices. And that's all we were trying to do was just keep everyone safe and, and just so that they could tie their trade wherever they possibly could. But it just didn't work out with a lot of the parlours as well. They weren't big enough to do either a one-way system or have people in sitting down at one point and having a queue for takeaway. You just couldn't do it. There's just not enough space. So it's just trying to adapt their businesses. So a bit like people are saying now is that, yes, they've adapted, but they can't, even if they've been able to trade, they can't do the volumes they used to do, Jim. There's just no way at this moment in time. So then it comes down to, is it profitable? We've heard a lot about how, especially from the larger companies that sell to supermarkets, how ice cream sales have shot up. Clearly, that yeah. that isn't necessarily right across the industry. No, not at all. I mean, if you supplied either hospitality, you know, as in restaurants or hospitals, schools or the food industry and like events, you just lost the whole of that business overnight. I know schools were operating, but as you know, they were operating under limited numbers for quite a long time. So people who had contracts with schools, you know, for desserts and stuff like that, that just went airline businesses. We had a few of our members that actually did all the catering desserts for the airline business. All that business went overnight. And it was just then trying to find some other way to supplement their income. As you know, there was just so many restrictions out there. It just made it very difficult. A lot of people who were able to adapt and maybe didn't have a takeaway offering before, then they did quite nicely because, you know, they were able to sort of get this new sort of business set up. Coffee was another big seller, as you can imagine, just because, you know, when people were out and their walks and whatever, they wanted an ice cream and a coffee. So our mobilers that could actually take on coffee as well as the soft serve machine then obviously did quite nicely. But it's also just getting into practices. As you can imagine, especially on the mobiling side, it used to be very cash-led. And then, of course, we were all encouraged to start using either PayPal or contactless and this, that and the other. So it was just that people having to adapt. But yes, if you had a supermarket contract, then you fared better because the one thing and the only place at one time that you could get your ice cream was from the supermarket. Has the move to more online sales been positive? Well, um, the thing is, 
a lot of people just didn't know whether if they were like sole traders, then they were okay. If they had staff, they had this decision to make, were they going to be taking enough money or did they need to furlough their staff? So, of course, then there were a lot of operators who were just having to try and operate on their own, which was quite exhausting. The other thing is that, yes, they did look at online sales, but then you've got to look at some of our members don't have an online website anymore. They tend to have Facebook sites. So some of them did do some ordering through Facebook and so they could do click and collect and stuff like that. But I would say the takeaway was probably the bigger opportunity. Either click and collect or offering a takeaway with social distancing was probably better for most people. Mentioning the, the fact that there's been a lot of sales online, have you seen any trends that have been more or less popular in ice cream over the last little while with the pandemic? I would say that luxury and premium products were the, the better sellers because we were all looking for that indulgency, weren't we? We were looking to spoil ourselves, treat ourselves because we, we were so restricted in so many other things. So I think definitely any sort of premium or indulgent products were very well received. So what we would class as luxury items, any of those uh, sort of very rich sort of ice creams, we all wanted a bit of that because it just seemed like that was a real treat. So yes, I mean, any of the luxury products, premium products that are slightly probably a, a little bit more price sensitive, we weren't looking at price at that point, were we? We were just looking for a treat and we didn't mind if we spent an extra couple of pounds getting it. What we seemed to feel was a more indulgent product. When there are issues, I would imagine organisations like yours are at their busiest. What, what have you been subjected to and how have you been able to help over the last, I guess, more than a year now? Yeah, I mean, we've provided, obviously, all our members with the tools to be able to operate. So whether it was practices on how to do the best thing on takeaway, whether it was looking at manufacturing, like I said, and looking at how to operate a process safely. We obviously supplied our members with posters for social distancing and washing hands and using hand sanitizers. We did a COVID risk assessment for them, template that they could edit and easily fill out. Yeah, we encourage every business, even if you had less than five staff, which you don't have to do it by law, we still encourage people to do risk assessments just to make sure that you're keeping themselves safe, their colleagues, as well as their families, because at the end of the day, you're going home to your families, aren't you? We then did um, sort of a guidelines on keeping staff and customers safe, along with updates for the government guidelines, which was the grants and the financial and also HR support you know, either with the furlough scheme, because originally with the furlough scheme, as you remember, you could only be furloughed. You couldn't do the flexible furlough. That didn't actually come into play until July. So if you were furloughed, you weren't allowed to do any company contact as such apart from training. But when it came into the flexible furlough, that gave some businesses the opportunity to bring some of their staff back, whether it was on minimum hours. So I would say the furlough scheme has been fantastic for the industry. I mean, it has been an absolute lifeline as well as some of the grants and financial assistance about that loans and those sorts of things. Now that there is possibly, allegedly, light at the end of the tunnel, <laughs> what's the mood like with your members? Are there a lot of communication as to how to move forward? Yeah, we have a divisional structure as a, a membership association. So we have nine divisions that cover the UK and Northern Ireland. Obviously, normally they would meet up with each other. Obviously, we've not been able to do that. So we've encouraged our members to come onto Zoom. So we've done a lot of training in the last few months to get our members onto Zoom so they can actually talk to each other because a lot of them have felt very isolated. 
the light at the end of the tunnel is the vaccination program and how successful that's been in here in the UK. It's lifted all our spirits and given us, you know, hope for the very near future where we just didn't feel like there was any by the middle of last year. Having the fact that, like we talked about before, that it's going to be quite difficult to go abroad and we don't know when that's going to be. Having the opportunity, having more people, as they were last year, as you remember, going to visit either and supporting their local communities or the seaside or the countryside or around the UK, that is why we brought in the Great British Ice Cream Staycation to just promote our members, telling the general public We're still here, but we do need your help to get through this season. So we're still all here in 2022 because it's been quite difficult for everybody. You've introduced this new summer program. Could you tell me about that and how you'll promote that and what the results or the intended results are? Yeah, we launched it last week and we came up with the name mainly because obviously because of the Great British Bake Off and the Great British uh, Menu and things like that, people, the general public know what that involves. So that's why we came up with the Great British Ice Cream Staycation. It is open not just only to our members, it's open to anybody within the industry. We are offering a whole host of free downloadable do-it-yourself marketing toolkits, which will help them to promote their business and become part of the campaign. All they have to do is literally log on to our website. We've got a dedicated page, tick a couple of boxes, and they automatically have access to a wealth of information, whether it is a COVID risk assessment, whether it is how to set up a Facebook account, or whether it is to just put the posts out there to say that they'd like to be part of this campaign. It's open to everybody. We just thought we just want to remind the general public that ice cream is a very fun, delicious product. It makes you feel quite happy. It's an affordable treat. And also, it creates iconic childhood memories for now and for the future. So this is why we've done it. It's been received quite well from the media so far and from people registering their interest to become involved. And we just feel that we just want to remind people that they can make a difference. Why they're holidaying here in the UK, if they could support their local either mobiling van, cafe, parlour, then that would be absolutely amazing because it will just help other elements within our industry. You know, the suppliers, the people that supply packaging, the mobile vans. So it is the whole industry. And we're just delighted that we can make this opportunity open to all. Because at the end of the day, as a trade association, we represent the ice cream industry and we are the only dedicated trade association in the UK. And we've been here since 1944. And we just want to support the industry to get our industry back on its feet so hoping that businesses will survive on the limited uh, way that they can then they can trade this year so that they'll be here for the foreseeable future and so what does the next year hold do you think and when will we have another event in harrogate we are booked in harrogate from the 8th to the 10th of february you can register for tickets on our website on our homepage. If you just look out for the banner on the homepage, just click on there and you can register. We will send out tickets probably the early part of next year. We are very excited for the fact that obviously at this moment, events can't take place, but they are starting to come into fruition and we will probably be one of the first food events in 2022. I had to line up for about 15 minutes for ice cream for the family after our walk at the weekend, but no one seemed to mind the wait. It's just good to see things opening again. With Earth Day coming up soon, I thought we'd have a feature on molecular farming. 
Nulek Science is a global ag food tech company with the purpose of improving the affordability of animal-free food solutions. And rather than me try to explain it all and fail miserably, through the wonders of modern technology we had a chat with four people from the company. Gaston Palladini, Martin Salinas, Henk Hochenkamp and Catalina Jones. And the first person you will hear from is Gaston. All right, could we first start with a bit of background on the company? Uh, we are Mulek Science. We are the company that is leading the molecular farming revolution in the alternative protein space. We use molecular farming as main technology to express animal proteins inside plants. We are the first and only company in the world expressing real animal proteins in plants to improve the plants, to improve the, the plant proteins for the plant-based movement with animal proteins allows us to get an hybrid concept between plant-based and cell-based technology. So we are a global company, a UK-based company with operations and R&D all around the globe. We have a crop science team in the US. We have a food tech team in the Netherlands and also a plant facility in Southern Kong. We have a proof of concept. We were the first team globally to express a bovine protein in plants for the food industry through an industrial scale. So we have more than 10 years of R&D experience. And right now we are interested working with an interested pipeline, expressing different proteins through different sources of animals. I'm talking about bovine proteins, porcine proteins, and also egg proteins and milk proteins and dairy proteins through different crops to make special blends for the plant-based industry in an animal-free way. So the beauty of our technology is that we leverage the efficiency of the plant because we understand that the main challenge of alternative protein is to get competitive cost, to get scale. There's nothing better than plants to get the scale. So we use plants as bioreactors. All our science go up front and we express all these animal products in the seeds of the plants. And then we leave the biology do the rest with the sun, the, the fields and, and, and the water. So at the end of the day, it's low-tech farming. All the scale is there to get in a B2B model the ingredients, or are we saying the, the commodities of the future? Because we are working to get uh, protein isolates and concentrates of the main plant proteins in the industry, but with the improvement of the animal cells, animal proteins inside to improve in final formulas for food producers to improve flavor, taste, color, functionality, and nutrition in different applications for in an integral solution for the whole new food system. I'm talking about meat, dairy, and egg industry. So it's a really holistic approach. The main driver in alternative products right now is sustainability. Uh, we cover uh, more than 10, I think 12 of the 17 ESG initiatives right now in sustainability. What stage are you at in terms of the solutions that you already have for the alternative protein space? We have a proof of concept. I will leave Martin to better explain that. So we divide our pipeline and our proof of concept 
and our core solutions right now. Uh, Martin, go ahead to, to, to explain proof of concept, and then we could talk with Heng and myself about the core products that we are developing, taking advantage of this great milestone that we get with Kaimos in that's the Boban protein. That's our proof of concept, Martin. As Gaston said, uh, our proof of concept is, is the production of chymosine um, in safflower seed. And chymosine is an enzyme, it's a bovine enzyme that is used in, in the cheese industry, right, just for cheese production. So around 10 years ago, we started this you know, molecular farming project to produce chymosine in safflower seeds. And we have done everything from the lab from the lab testing, pilot production, and we actually built an industrial facility to produce these animal proteins in safflower for the food industry. We were the first worldwide team to achieve that for the industrial biotech space. We have the, the world's first product for the food industry approved using molecular farming platform. Um, we also have the first industrial facility to produce this kind of product, and it's, for, for us, was a, a big achievement, um, and it's, it's a, it was something that is quite important for us to understand that what we could validate through our in product is the platform. It's molecular farming as a platform to produce proteins using plants as bioreactor. But having said that, regarding also our proof of concept and, and this idea of, you know, using plants as bioreactor because of the efficiency, the thing that we have done differently is just, you know, shift the idea for molecular farming that was originally being used for the pharmaceutical industry, meaning higher value products and, and low volumes. So we have, why don't we use molecular farming for the industrial biotech space? And that's a click that, that that's a, a good, I, I think that unlocks a, a new approach for the industry. And that's something that we're trying to bring to the table. So coming back to your question, Jim, basically, this is our first product, the Chymosine, for the cheese industry in our current pipeline using safflower. We have other um, oils based on safflower as well that we're planning to launch in, in the next years. But our safflower platform is, is, is our current pipeline. We are also working on different gene edited crops for different trade like oils um, and proteins as well. But that is our short term product. So guys, if you want to move forward with our next generation of product, go ahead. Right now we're targeting the main crops that are used in our food system because there already is a existing network of downstream processing facilities. For example, if you look at wheat, there are enough milling companies that can turn that into a flour. There are enough companies that can turn the wheat into wheat starch, wheat bran, wheat gluten. So we want to make use of the existing capacity that's in the market by just offering them a better crop. And this crop will already contain the animal protein. This allows us to have a scalable approach, a low cost approach, but approach that will generate crops with different functionality from a nutritional side, from a functionality side, which basically increases the value for the producer, for the, the end user, and for everybody in between. So we right now, and uh, this is not exhaustive, but just, just as an example, we're looking at soy, pea, wheat, and oats as our four main crops. 
We have some other research projects ongoing. Basically, in short, we're going to make soy and pea taste like meat, which means that the subsequent derivatives also taste like meat. For example, with wheat, we're actually going to add in a protein that can be found in eggs to make it more functional for the bakeries. This means that we can eliminate the use of eggs in many applications altogether, whilst maybe not even influencing the final cost. And lastly, and this is what we're talking about today, we're actually going to modify oats to include a dairy protein. And the interest here is that the, you know just the grain will be ready for processing into a dairy, a plant-based dairy product with superior nutritional profile. Basically, this is the most efficient system of getting from a grain or from crop to a drink without having to install any other special capacity whatsoever. And where does the animal protein, where's the animal protein derived from? It really depends. It depends on, on what the market wants. So in this case, a specific dairy protein would be made by the plant itself. We give the plant the genetic instruction to make that specific protein in a certain way at certain amounts. We calculate it backwards. So we say, okay, how much of the specific protein do we want in the final application? And how much of that protein does the plant need to produce so that it doesn't produce too much or too little? Of course, there are limits there, but that's what we're researching. And I guess the, the, the big million dollar question is, is it considered to be vegan? Yes. And the first question is yes, because it's animal free. We are taking the animal out of the equation. The beauty of our technology is that we could express the real proteins without the animal. The wider question here is, Jim, it's not only about being vegan, yes or no. You know, it's about making sure we have food for all, protein for all, hopefully without using animals. Because animals are basically less efficient than just eating directly, eating from you know, a, a crop from the land. So, yes, it will be vegan because there's no animals being used. I don't think this would be a problem for the consumer because it takes all the boxes. But the major box is going to take is the sustainability box because this technology will be applicable down the line to any given food and allow every country on this planet to grow their local crop of choice with their animal protein of choice to make a food that would serve their own local populations. What happens in terms of the cost effectiveness of this process and the ability to produce at scale? I assume that with it being a crop, producing at scale isn't an issue. Since our science works on top of the plant base, we can match the same cost for any plant protein production. And if you can compare that with uh, another way to produce alternative proteins like fermentation or cultured meat, you can feel like you will be reducing dramatically the cost. But basically, because the cell-based alternative protein landscape like fermentation and cultured meat, they need to use bioreactors. So they need to use a lot of machinery to produce the proteins, meaning uh, bioreactors, with, um, you need to supply oxygen, you need to supply a, a cultured media for the cells to grow. Uh, you need then the, the heavy downstream processing to purify the proteins. So that, that you can feel that to produce a cost-effective animal protein for the food industry, it doesn't work, right, in the cost structure. But if you just think on the plant, you know, the cost of the producing an animal protein is, is just the farming. 
and we use photosynthesis for farming. We use soil, we use the land. And you can feel like comparing, right, in a very intuitive way how dramatically you are reducing the cost to produce a new protein using plants, comparing with bioreaction and the cell-based landscape. So we are combining both where, right, as, as um, Gaston mentioned, in the hybrid concept, we combine the cell base because we can have an animal protein inside the plant, so we don't have the, the scalability and the cost issue of the cell base, and we can have the benefit of the scale and having a product that is tasty, flavor, and with the right function and the right nutrition. And what are the benefits going to be to producers of the end products and also to the end consumer? We have a B2B model to build solutions, to build ingredients. So first, our customers are food producers. We understand food producers. Actually, I understand them by first hand because I have been working in the family business for more than 12 years. It's actually a, a food producer. So I know by first hand what food producers need to produce plant-based products checking the, the animal products in the in final form. So when you do that, you need proteins. You need proteins to bind all because the proteins were in the animal's proteins. So um, most of the time, the plant proteins, they are not good enough to mimic and to, to emulate final products. So what the food producers need is functionality. is high functionality to get all in one product. Let's imagine a burger or a sausage. You need to bind all in a matrix, in, in a formula. Water, especially water. When you make a, a sausage, for example, you need to put water in a formula. So how you could be in all? We need functionality, high functionality in proteins. So the thing here is that plant-based products, have there's no animals there. They use mostly soy proteins or pea proteins. They have sort of functionality, but that's not good enough as compared with animal proteins. It's quite impossible to get the level of the organoleptic properties that animal proteins has. And I'm talking about taste, color, flavor, or, or just imagine a, a juicy burger. So what Impossible Foods makes in this approach, they make a recombinant protein, they make fermentation process to get these organoleptic properties. Because at the end of the day, the consumers, for example, in a burger, the consumer is expecting a good mouth experience. A juicy burger. This is quite difficult to get that with only plant proteins. And for example, in a dairy product, for example, milk, well, consumers are expecting a, some nutrition in the formula or some nutritional aspects in final product. So it's quite difficult to get that nutrition, the original dairy protein from the cow milk. So what we do with our approach is to get all of that things that you take out with the animals original inside the plants without the animal in the process. So for example, the milk, well, we put inside the oat seeds, the nutritional proteins that could improve the plant-based ingredient to make at the end of the day with the fruit producers in between an alternative milk with better nutritional aspects. So we understand the fruit producers, what they need. They need better products for their consumers. Only with plant is quite difficult to get them. So we are improving this plant process, these plant plant-based ingredients. And at the same time, they need to get down the cost. And our approach have 
both things. When do you think that we'll start to see products from this process on shelves? We are now relaunching our Chymosin project, our dairy first product. This is happening uh, at the early next year. And for the next generation of products, probably in a year and a half or two, we are going to start our pre-commercial products, having our first relationship with the food producers. We start having some conversations with, with big producers, and they are all very interesting to start testing our products. So it's a matter of a few months, and we, we are going to start running our new generation of products. And clearly big implications for sustainability. Our technology will produce 60 times less GHG emissions than cattle, six times less than uh, pork, and seven times less than poultry. Everything that goes around our technology will have to do with the specific vision of taking into account which is the sustainability way of doing things, such as improving the sustainable farming practices we're going to use to uh, harvest our different crops, everything that has to do with land usage, water usage, soil management, and also by being able to promote a circular system in terms of our business model. As Martin said, we are also having a byproduct regarding our safflower, and that is the way that we are going to manage our business in terms of how waste is managed, how we can promote a circular business and take a advantage of each and every piece of what we are doing to leverage the profitability in terms of our, uh, our yield in the business. What are the next steps over the next sort of six to 12 months for the company? First, a lot of work. We are very open to partnerships, collaborations. Of course, all the companies in alternative projects, and I, I would say all around the world in different industries, we all have our IP, we all have our shareholders, our NDAs, our secret ingredients, and we understand that, and that's part of the business. But at the same time, in alternative proteins, there are more than 400 companies right now. And all of us, we have the same goal. How we could feed the world in a sustainable way, how we could get animal products in a sustainable way. For us, the key is affordability. If we don't get, at the end of the day, an affordable protein for the masses, we are going to end as a bigger niche. And we don't want that. What we really think is that we have a main problem here, a growing population. We have a main problem is the GAG emissions. The planet should be in the center of the focus. So the real shift starts when the price gets close to the traditional one. We are not targeting for the rich countries or all the, for the rich neighborhoods in the main cities. We are targeting the masses. We work daily basis for the 90% of people that need to eat uh, and not just the 10% that could afford and could choose what to eat. That's why we are using plants. That's why we are using molecular farming. And our approach put affordability over all the drivers. But it's not because of a competitive advantage for the industry. It's because we understand that that's the beginning of a real sustainable way to do things. So what I'm trying to say here is that we all have the same goal. So right now, we are working with different companies to make JVs and partnerships to pull together 
different approach. I'm talking about dairy companies. I'm talking about cultured meat companies. I'm talking about fermentation companies. Uh, that they are very interesting working together, and we are as well. So we are start uh, make building some partnerships. And so now it's time for our weekly trip across the Irish Sea to get our weekly update on the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from StoneX. This week saw skim milk powder hold the gains of last week while flat on the week. It had a, a good a good week previously and uh, continued to hold those gains. Uh, butter was down a bit, but uh, nothing too substantial. Maybe a relaxation in relation to concerns around milk supply. GDT yesterday was off uh, 0.1%. So we had a uh, quarter two butter was down around uh, 25 euros on the week to around the 41.15 level. Quarter three butter was down around 50 euros on the week to 41.60. Quarter four was off about 50 euros on the week to 41.90 level. And quarter one was down around 70 euros to the 40.30 level. Skimmel powder, as I say, uh, remained relatively flat on the week. Quarter two still trading around 25.60. Quarter three trading around 25.80. Quarter four trading around 25.90. And quarter one trading at around 25.75.80 level. All more or less the same levels as last week. We still trading around 1,000, maybe a bit north of that. So continuing to remain firm. Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week for our last podcast of April. That's pretty much a third of the year gone. Where'd it go? And where do we get a refund? StoneX, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. All right, so that's it for this week. For the next one, I already have two interviews done, just one more to find. As of next Monday, we are free to move about the entire UK as opposed to just in Scotland. So that means we now can't go to see sport in other countries or see concerts in other countries. So I think we'll probably just stay put for the next little while. We're pretty lucky. There are plenty of things to see and do here. Hopefully that's also the case where you are. And so I hope you all have a great week. Stay safe, take care, and as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.